Please open your Bibles to the first chapter of Romans, and we have recently begun uh, our study of this marvelous book. Just a couple weeks ago, we're still in the beginning stages of this book, and we continue this morning in, in the opening verses, in the introduction of this, this great text that we have called the greatest letter ever written. And it is so because this letter encapsulates the glories of the gospel. This book is about redemption, about faith in Christ, about justification by grace through faith alone. It's about the righteousness of God declared to us in Jesus Christ. And so this book is really the greatest letter ever written because it tells us about the good news. It is a topic that as Paul begins to write this book, he is so excited about he can barely get it off his pen. And as soon as his pen hits the paper, the first things that come out are gospel praises. That's what's contained here in these opening seven verses, which mark the introduction to the book of Romans. We said last week that it is really a a standard introduction in many cases. It is similar to the introduction that Paul gives in many of his other letters. You'll notice in verse 1, he cites himself as the author, Paul. And he describes himself in verse 1, as he does in many other epistles, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which he does in many other books. And he writes to who he's writing to in verse 7, to the beloved in Rome. And then he gives his standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his, his standard introduction in many ways, and yet this one is unique. And it's unique because it's the longest of all of his introductions And it is perhaps the most theological, the most personal, and the most gospel-saturated of all of his introductions. We said last week that these verses contain really the gospel in miniature. These are essentially a summary of what he's going to introduce for us over the next 16 chapters. They they constitute a, a preview of coming attractions, a foretaste, a glimpse at what he's going to spend the rest of this book explaining for us. It's a tremendous introduction because it describes for us the good news for those who love and receive his son, Jesus Christ. About all the the riches, about all of the treasures, about all the glorious benefits that come to us because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in essence, what you have here in summary are the spiritual riches and treasures that are ours in the gospel. I was reading a couple weeks ago, as you probably saw, that in Poland, two men recently have testified that they have found a buried train from the World War II, from the Nazis, who, legend has it, filled this train with with all kinds of gold and treasure and, and artifacts, and these men claim to have recently found this treasure train. Legend has it that During World War II, in the spring of 1945, the Nazis loaded this train with all kinds of valuables as the Soviet army approached, and the desire, supposedly, was to send this train out to another city, to a castle which was being built as kind of the headquarters of the the German Reich, and rumor has it that as that train left the city, it traveled for a number of miles but never reached its destination. Legend has it, rumor has it, that the Nazis buried this treasure train in a secret tunnel and collapsed the entrance to it, and for decades it's been hidden. Is it true? I don't know, but just two weeks ago, two men came forward saying that they have found the legendary treasure train, and they have irrefutable proof from ground-penetrating radar to prove that they have discovered this train, which could be worth millions and millions of dollars. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that like every person's dream to find the the treasure, the buried treasure? I submit to you that if you found Jesus Christ, you have found a far greater treasure than a buried train full of gold. And that's Paul's point in this book is that if you are in Christ and you have received him, then you have found an incredible trove of riches that far surpasses anything that this world can offer 
to you. And it's that reality, the gospel, that has Paul so excited and so worked up that he writes this incredible book about the glories of the gospel. He gives us then a glimpse of this incredible reality here in these opening verses. Let me read them for you. Follow along as I read these first seven verses of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That right there is a summary of the gospel. That I believe may be one of the best summaries in all of the scriptures on what the gospel is. And it's a reason is because it gives us evidence for why the gospel is the really good news that it is. What we want to do is continue where we began last week by looking at some of the reasons why the gospel is really good news. If you were here last week, you remember that we looked at two reasons why the gospel is really good news. We're giving you five reasons total. We looked at two last week. We're going to look at three more this week, all that come from this text right here that help us understand why we should be excited about the gospel and why this reality should be the thing that excites us most in life. Not our job, not our income, Not our retirement account, not our sports, not our recreation, not our vacations, not our accomplishments, not our car or our house or whatever other things may get us really worked up and pound the pulpit and get excited. No, this reality, the reality of the gospel ought to be the thing that excites us most. And so you're here this morning and some of you may find your heart somewhat cold to the gospel. Somewhat indifferent. I know this. Heard this since I was a kid. Got this. No, friends. If your heart is somewhat cold, these are the reasons that should inflame your mind and inform your heart again about this marvelous reality known as the gospel. Very quickly, we looked to last week at two of these reasons why the gospel is really good news. The first one is that it was anticipated in the Old Testament. Paul writes in verse 2, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so the, the first reason why you and I should be excited about the gospel is because this reality is not something new. It's not something that Paul came up with or Jesus just kind of invented as he came on on the scene. It's not some afterthought of God. What you have in the gospel is something that was anticipated in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ. And all of those prophecies, all of those types, all of those symbols, all of those Old Testament allusions and shadows all pointed ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all those things. And so if you have embraced the gospel, you have embraced something that has been anticipated for millennia. That's amazing. And that's why you should be excited about it. Number two. Second reason why you should be excited about the gospel is because it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Because it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. He is the person, the work that brought about the good news. He is the one that has ushered in. He is the cause. He is the meaning. He is the source of the gospel. He is the one who has accomplished the work to bring about the good news, to provide for our redemption and our Salvation, And you can see it in verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. From the very beginning of this book, Paul wants there to be no doubt, no question, no ambiguity about the source, the meaning of the gospel. It is found in no one other than Jesus Christ. 
Verse 3 is a statement about his humanity. Verse 4 is a statement about his deity. And so from the very beginning, Paul gives us this full-orbed understanding of the incarnation that, in verse 3, according to the flesh, he came as a man, as a seed of David. In the line of David, he was a man made just like us, born like us lived like us, with a body like us. He was fully human in all of his ways. He is fully man. Verse 4 is a statement about his deity. He is also fully God. He is the Son of God. And that reality is confirmed by the fact that he has been raised back to life from the dead. Isn't that amazing? The resurrection is a stamp of God's approval upon the deity of Jesus Christ. No one else has done this. No one else has been raised back to life never to die again, but Christ has, and that's testimony to the fact that He is God in human flesh. And so these are, these are the things that we've seen so far, that it was anticipated in the Old Testament. It was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Now, this morning I want to give you three more reasons that will take us through the end of this introduction. Three more reasons why you and I need to be excited about this gospel. Okay, so let's look at these. Number three, it is announced for God's glory. It is announced for God's glory. And I want you to notice verse 5. It says, Through whom? Through Christ, whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. I want you to notice the last phrase in that verse. For his name's sake sake. The reason the gospel has come to us, the reason you have embraced the gospel is ultimately, as the end of verse 5 says, for his name's sake, for God's sake, for his glory, for his majesty, God has brought about salvation in Christ ultimately for his own glory. And friends, we need to state that clearly, boldly, that we, listen carefully, we are not the end of the gospel. We are not the end of the gospel. We are not saved for ourselves. We're not saved so we can go to heaven, so we can be free from hell, so we can be forgiven. We are not the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel is God for his name's sake, for his glory. And then, friends, that's why you need to be excited about the gospel. Because the gospel, listen carefully, the gospel has freed you up to live out what you were created to do. You get it? You were created for God's glory. You were created for God's purposes. You were created to magnify Him. You were created to be a, a stage upon which God could glorify Himself, to make you a trophy of grace, not so that you're an end of yourself, but so that you yourself become a means by which God displays His glory and receives glory for all of eternity. That's why you're saved. For His name's sake. Isaiah 43, verse 7, says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You were created for the glory of God. You were made in the image of God to reflect the glory of God, to exist for the, the majesty of God, and to announce the praise of God for all of eternity. That's why you were made. But here's the problem. You know as well as I do that that's not how we live. Prior to Christ... All of us were glory seekers. That's all we were. Every single one of us in this room, every person who's ever lived, has been one who has, because of sin, been born into a desire to seek their own glory, to live for their name's sake. Let's face it, all of you, all of us, me included, we're all me monsters. Right? That's all we are. We're me monsters. We, We want people to affirm us. We want people to, uh, to notice us, to recognize us. We want people to see how great we are. We, we want to be those kind of people who grasp our own glory. We get consumed with our own glory, with our own accomplishments. We want to magnify ourselves. We want to make much of ourselves. That's what sin does. Sin transforms us into me monsters, to glory seekers, to people who want to make much of themselves instead of God who created us for his glory. And so instead of holding a mirror, as it were, in our hands that reflects God's glory back to himself as he looks at us, what we have all done in sin is flip that mirror around. And we look at that mirror and we say, man, I'm really something. <laughs> look at me. Did you see me? Look at me. I'm really something. That's what sin does. 
It transforms us into glory seekers. But the glory of the gospel is that it turns that around and causes us to live out what we are created to do for God's glory, for the sake of his name. And it's only the gospel that can do that. Now, that's an introduction to this point. Let me explain what Paul is saying in verse 5. Look what he says. Through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul wants us from the very beginning to understand something very basic about the gospel. He wants us to understand that it is the gospel that converts vain, selfish glory seekers into passionate seekers of God's glory. That's what it does. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and and apostleship. Now, notice the we there. Some have taken that to mean Paul and his apostle friends. That's the we, or it could refer to Paul and the Romans to whom he's writing to, but Paul's never been to visit the Romans before. So who's the we? Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. I think what this is, is something called the Hendiadus. Do you remember that from ninth grade English grammar? No, none of you do. I know. I had to look it up too. A hendiadus is two words which, when brought together, communicate one truth. And so what he's talking about here is that we have received grace and apostleship. We, meaning I, have received grace and apostleship. I have received not only grace in the form of salvation through Jesus Christ, but I have also received an apostleship, a charge, a ministry which God has given to me. And so I think we should translate this, I have received the grace of apostleship. Make sense? It could be he's referring to I've received grace through Christ in the gospel, and I've also received the apostolic ministry to which I've been charged But I believe it's best to take these two words, grace and apostleship, together, meaning one thing. Paul is saying, I have received the grace of apostleship. I've been given the awesome privilege, the awesome task, Paul says, of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. I have been graced with this ministry. I've been graced with this privilege. I have been graced with this opportunity. I have been given the divine privilege of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And so what Paul is saying here in verse 5, he's saying, I have received the grace of apostleship. I have been charged by God to be able to deliver his gospel in the form of preaching his word, and that is an act of God's grace to me, and what a privilege it is. He's referring here to ministry as an act of God's grace. Hold your finger here. Go to the end of Romans. I want you to see that he says something very similar at the end of Romans, chapter 15. Starting in verse 15. He says, I've written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. You see what he says at the end of 15? I've been given this grace from God to be a minister. See, he sees his apostleship, he sees his ministry as a divine gift from God, an act of God's grace that he's been graced with the opportunity to preach the word and preach the gospel. Go back to Romans 1. He understands that his ministry is an act of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 says this. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By God's grace, I have been entrusted with this ministry. By God's grace, I have been given the opportunity to preach the word. By his grace, I have been given divine apostleship. I think what you see here in Romans 1 is Paul's heart. He's overcome with this immense privilege. I have been given this incredible privilege. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, since we have this ministry as we have received mercy. 
He calls ministry there a mercy. Anytime you are enabled by God to serve somebody else, to preach his word, to teach his word, to encourage the body, to use your gifts, to minister to the church, anytime that opportunity comes your way, you have been given a mercy. A mercy. Think about it. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the privilege and the joy of being able to be used by God to further his kingdom. That's not something that we deserve. And yet every time he opens a door for that kind of service, in whatever capacity, it's an evidence of God's mercy to us. And so Paul says he sees his commission and his apostolic privilege as an incomprehensible gift of God's grace. Is that how you view your ministry? I'll tell you, there's times... When I stand up here and I think, really? I I get to preach God's word. I get to stand before you, dear saints, and say, thus says the Lord. I get to shepherd his people. I I get to be a part of the, the bride of Christ and serve this body. And really? I don't deserve that. I'm overcome. I'm overwhelmed at times at the privilege and the joy of being able to serve the bride of Christ. Well, that's what Paul says. Why did he receive this? Look at verse 5. Why was he given this immense privilege? Verse 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And what you have right here is a summary of Paul's understanding of his divine apostleship. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter wasn't. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. You can see that in the first chapters of the book of Acts, but not Paul. Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he was called then, because of that, to bring the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. The gospel was for the Jew first and then for the Greek. And Paul was sent to go to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to proclaim the gospel. Now listen, friends, you need to think about that. I'm assuming most of you here this morning are are Gentiles. It's God's grace and mercy that the gospel has come to you. It's God's grace and mercy through the Jewish people that the gospel has come to you because of their rejection. It's come to us as Gentiles. And I wonder this morning, have Have you ever thought, have you ever taken some time to slowly think and praise God and worship Him for the fact that their rejection means your salvation? That's staggering. Look down at verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Their rejection of the gospel means that God has now taken the gospel to the Gentile people to bring them in to his plan and his purposes of redemption. And you, we, are the byproduct of that. What evidence of God's mercy and grace. Well, look what he did. Paul's call to apostleship was given to him by God, look at verse 5, in order to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. Now, that's a very, very important little phrase. I want you to think about that, maybe underline that phrase, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. I was thinking this week, we could preach a whole sermon right on that. The obedience of faith. That, that is filled with meeting. That is just full of all kinds of glorious truth about what true saving faith really is. And the goal of the gospel is to generate obedience to the faith. And so what Paul is talking about here is that when someone truly receives Christ and embraces the gospel, they will be marked by obedience. It was the aim of his apostleship. It wasn't just to to, to get the salvation out there in the words of the gospel and get people converted. That's not enough. The aim of the gospel message preached through Paul, the aim of the gospel message preached today is to secure obedience to Christ. Salvation is not enough. It's not enough to just say, I've been called to be saved and then live any way I want. 
The gospel call is a call to obedience to Christ and submission to his lordship. So important is this truth that Paul bookends this entire book with that reality. Turn to Romans chapter 16. I know I had you turn to Romans 15. Go to Romans 16. And I want you to see that he ends this book in almost the same way that he begins this book, reminding us, reminding his readers that the call of the gospel is a call to obedience. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26. It says this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, who has been made known to all the nations, here it is, leading to obedience of faith. You see it? That's partially the goal of the gospel. That's how you know you've embraced the gospel. Are you obedient to the faith that you profess? Paul is talking here about the obedience that characterizes and proceeds from true, genuine faith. Listen, mark this down. True, saving faith is always and will always be marked by obedience. Always. It will always be marked by and evidenced by an obedient heart, a heart that wants to obey Christ, a heart that wants to follow Christ, a heart that wants to engage Christ and know Him and walk with Him and obey His Word. And what Paul is getting at here is that true saving faith always produces obedience to and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if it's not there, it's not saving faith. Very important that we talk about this, I believe, especially in West Michigan, because we live still in the remnants of a Christian bubble, and most people, especially here in Church City, USA, Bible Belt North, the buckle of the Bible Belt, would say that they're Christians. It's not enough to say you're a Christian. It's not enough to, to, to say that you've had a religious experience. It's not enough to say that you prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, threw your log in the fire at a camp, had some religious experience, or asked Jesus in your heart. None of that makes you a Christian. You know you're saved when you look at the present pattern of obedience in your life. Listen, you never, ever, ever confirm your salvation by looking to a past event. You never go back to some past event and say, I know I'm saved because in the past, so-and-so happened to me. That's part of it. That's that's part of the process by which God saves us. But that's not our confirmation of our salvation. You want to know for sure that you have embraced Christ. You know you've embraced Christ when your life is marked by obedience. When it's marked by a love for Christ, a love for his word, and a willingness to follow him and submit to him. That's the gospel message. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone but it's not by a faith that is alone. That's what Luther said. Luther said that salvation is by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone, meaning it always will accompany, it will be accompanied by an evidence of your salvation, fruit, obedience. That's why James in chapter 2 says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. You can say, I have faith, but if there's no obedience, that faith is dead. And that's why I wish we had more time to go through this. We're not going to do it. But I want you to think about that in Scripture, a number of times there is a connection between obedience and faith. The Scriptures make that link repeatedly. The connection between faith in Christ and obedience to Christ. Let me give you a few examples. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. You know it well. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, does not obey them, will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Why was its fall? Because it wasn't the real deal. 
How about Matthew 13, the parable of the soils? Four kinds of soils. Seed cast on four kinds of soils. Soil number one, the hard path, there's no fruit. There's no, there's no seed that comes up. There's no plant that comes up. Not a true believer. The seed that's cast in the rocky soil, it springs up and then dies very quickly, but there's no fruit, there's no evidence, there's nothing there to indicate true salvation. Third kind of soil, it's cast among the thorny soil, it's, it grows up and it looks like it's going to be the real thing and then it's choked out by the cares of the world, not the real deal. It's only the last one. Seed cast on the good soil where it sprouts and produces a plant that produces fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. That's an evidence of a true believer. Obedience marked Faith marked by obedience. And so over and over again, there, there's this statement throughout the scriptures that true faith is evidenced by obedience. It's even in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Period, right? That's it? No, it keeps going. Teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. You want to know you're saved? Is your mark, my life marked by obedience? John 3, verse 36, Jesus says, He who abides in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Listen, you can say, I believe in Christ and I have eternal life, but if you don't obey, if you're not marked by an obedience and allegiance, and a submission to Christ, it's not real. How about Luke chapter 9, verse 23? Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, daily follow me forever. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. True Christians are those who count the cost of discipleship. They take up their cross daily. They follow Christ. Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, his sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone who does not carry his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. And none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Jesus Christ in the end of Luke 14 is talking about the cost of discipleship. And there's a call to obedience, to surrender your life, to commit your life to Christ and submit to his lordship. And Paul's point here in Romans chapter 1 is that's what the gospel does. When the gospel takes root in someone's heart, it turns you from a disobedient self-glory seeker into an obedient follower of Jesus Christ. That's how powerful the gospel is. Yet we need to admit and confess that there is a faith that does not save. There, there is such a thing as an unsaved believer. You're looking at one for 18 years. That was me. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a good person. I'm saved. I follow Christ. I wasn't a follower of Christ. I was an unsaved believer, a make-believer. I wasn't obedient. I didn't follow Christ from my heart. Listen, there's no salvation without a recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is getting at here is the power of the gospel is able to completely renovate your life, and that's what he aimed to do in the proclamation of the gospel. He sought to preach Christ that would result in the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. That's what he aimed to do, to secure obedient followers of Christ, not flippant people who say, yeah, I'll, I'll subscribe to Christ if it means... I get to go to heaven. Friends, the call of the gospel is a call to follow Christ and obey him. Now look at the end of verse 5. Why? Why all of this? Are you still tracking with me? Why was Paul given the grace of apostleship? And why did he make his ministry about the proclamation of the good news in order to secure the faith among the, the Gentiles? Why? Look at the end of verse 5. For his name's sake. 
And right there you have the end goal of all gospel proclamation. It's worship. The end goal of you and I coming to Christ is not us. The end goal of of, of us coming to Christ is not having a church. The end goal of us coming to know Christ is not to have a group of people that kind of think the same way we do. The end goal of people coming to know Christ is to secure their obedience in order that for the first time in their life, they can now live to His glory and for His name's sake. That's why you better be excited about the gospel. Because it enables you and frees you up to be the kind of person that God created you to be, to be a God-glory seeker instead of a self-glory seeker. By the way, did you know the ultimate goal of all of God's dealings in history is that His name would be known and admired and cherished and adored and worshipped for all eternity. That's why God does what He does. You've heard it said before that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But did you know that that's God's aim as well? That God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Have you ever thought about that? The aim for which God does all things, his ultimate goal for all of what he does in redemptive history is to secure for himself glory for his name's sake. And sometime this week, I would like you to go through the Old Testament and I would like you to find the hundreds of examples where it talks about God working for his name's sake. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm doing your homework for you. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. What one nation on earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself. God chose Israel in the Old Testament for himself, to make a name for himself, for his glory. How about 2 Kings Chapter 19, verse 34, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Why does God defend that city? Not for the sake of the city, for his name's sake, for his reputation, for his glory. How about Isaiah 43, verse 25? I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Why does God choose not to remember the sins of his people anymore? It's not for our sake, it's for his sake. How about Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11? For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will act. How can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Why does God act the way he does in the Old Testament? It's for the sake of his name. How about Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8? Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name. Why did God deliver Israel from the Egyptians? Not for their sake. For the sake of his name and what he promised. How about Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 32. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I am not doing this for your sake, but for the sake of my name. And that's just a few examples from the Old Testament. When God acts, he always acts to preserve and to promote the glory of his name. Let me give you one example from Romans. Go over to Romans 9, 16. One last example. Romans 9, actually, verse 17. Let me show you one more example here. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see, this is a New Testament truth. It's an Old Testament truth. It's a truth that permeates all the scriptures that when God acts, he always acts to promote the glory of his name. And his name represents who he is and his name is a testimony to his nature and his character and his aim in all of life, in all of creation, and all he does is to secure glory for himself. You say, that's prideful. Oh, no. You need to stop thinking like a sinner. It's not prideful. You say, well, wait a minute. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not seek its own. Oh, but wait. God is the source of all that is love. He is the epitome of love. And so it's not wrong for God to seek his own glory. It is right for God to seek his own glory. It is right for God to do all that he does for the sake of his name because he is the most glorious being in the universe. If he doesn't do that, then he's not the most glorious being in the universe. You see? Well, that's a lot to take in. Get the point. The point is the reason we need to love the gospel is because God in Christ announces it for his glory, which you were created to display. And so prior to coming to Christ, you live for your own glory, for your own majesty, for your own fame, for your own worth. And what God does in the gospel is he turns you around and he gives you a new heart so that you can, for the first time in your life, live to the glory of God. And when we understand salvation that's way, that way, we understand it's not for us. You realize that? You're not saved for yourself. You're not saved just to avoid hell, go to heaven, be forgiven. Oh, no. If that's what you think of salvation, you have a very small view of salvation in the gospel. You are saved for the glory of God. You are redeemed to secure for him glory, which he will do for all of eternity. And that's why when you get to the end of Romans 11... After Paul has, has spoken for almost 11 chapters on the glory of the gospel and justification and sanctification and his plan for Israel, when he gets to the end of chapter 11, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor, or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen? That's the point of the gospel. And when you get it, when your heart grasps that the goal of the gospel is his name's sake, you'll see it in a whole different fashion. So do you love the gospel? I hope you do. Because before you received it, you were a self-glory seeker, as we all were. And now in Christ, the mirror has been turned back around. And God can maximize the glory that he seeks to get from you because of what Christ has done in your life for his name's sake. And if you're here this morning, you say, eh, the gospel's just not, it's not really gotten my heart. Oh, friend, then you've missed the heart and the soul of the gospel. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And it's about God's glory. Number four, and if you're wondering how long this is going to go, these will go a little shorter. It is applied through sovereign grace. The reason you need to be excited about the gospel, first, is it was anticipated in the Old Testament. Second, it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. Third, it is announced for God's glory. Number four, it is applied through sovereign grace. Look at verse six. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Christ. This is a statement of sovereign grace. This is a statement that, that Christians are people whom God has called sovereignly, supernaturally. He has summoned them. He has divinely appointed them. They are the recipients of a, a divine call which has brought them into salvation. This is a reference to sovereign grace. Now, those of you who know me well enough know that I love preaching about this because it goes along with what we just talked about. If you don't understand sovereign grace, 
If you don't understand God's side of salvation and the gospel, then you tend to live a life where you're kind of focused on yourself and you don't appreciate the glorious ramifications of all the gospel. And so it's only when you truly comprehend not only the fact that you have come to faith in Christ, but that God has done a work in eternity past to secure your salvation by electing you, predestining you, regenerating you, calling you, that gives you a new heart that enables you to respond to the gospel. Only then do we fully appreciate the wonder and the glory of the gospel. That's what Paul's getting at here. God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, just so you know, we're going to get to it in chapter 8. And we're going to get to it in chapter 9. But he gives us a little preview here that he says that, that believers, the Romans that he's writing to, and by implication us who also know Christ, are those who are the called of Jesus Christ. That, that's your title. If you're here today and you know Christ, you are the called. Tremendous. Now, notice with me, verse 1. He uses the same word up in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. That's not like, hey, Paul, you want to come be an apostle, like making a phone call. This is a divine summons. This is a supernatural divine appointment. Paul, you will be my apostle by sovereign choosing. And he uses the same term down in verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And he actually uses it again in verse 7, called as saints. This is referring to a call of God upon the life of believers to make them his children and overcome their willful rebellion to enable them to respond to the gospel. Did you know that if you were never called in this fashion, you would never be saved? You say, well, isn't the gospel open for everybody? Absolutely. It's open for anyone who believes. It's open for anyone who repents of their sins and embraces Christ as Lord and Savior. It is a, a call that goes out to everybody, and yet there is a sense in which the only people who are saved are those who receive a divine summons through this sovereign call of God to be children of Christ. This is the God's sovereignty side of salvation. Let's go over to Romans 8, just briefly. Give you a little preview. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And who are the called? He tells us who they are in verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, there's an unbreakable chain in the chain of redemption. It starts with foreknowledge, it moves to predestination, which then moves to a calling, which then results in justification and ultimately glorification. That is an unbreakable chain in the chain of redemption. Tremendous. You are the called. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Now let me explain this. I want you to understand that when we refer to the term the call in Scripture, <clears throat> there are two calls. Okay, there are two calls that go out by God, one which results in resistance, one that results in redemption. Say, what, what, what about these calls? Matthew chapter 22, verse 14 says, Many are called, few are chosen. There is a general call that goes out to everybody, and there is a special call that goes out to the elect. And that's what the scriptures teach, and that's what Paul is referring to here. There is, first of all, a general call, and that general call is a general call of the offer of the gospel to all people in all places at all times. Everyone hears the, the opportunity to receive Christ and embrace Christ. It is given to all men without exception. This is an invitation to the world to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the general call, and it's available to anybody. Anyone can be saved who hears the gospel and responds to it. It represents a universal call to all of mankind to be saved. Here's the problem. It's always resisted. It's always resisted. Sinful men 
sinful women don't want that offer. They turn from it. They reject it. We're going to get to it in Romans chapter 3. So this is the problem with the general call. It's resisted. But God doesn't just give a general open invitation to the world in order to actually secure the redemption of people for his own glory who will live for the sake of his name. He issues also a special call. A special call that goes out to those people that were foreknown, predestined, now called and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ in the power of the gospel. And this special call is is limited only to the elect. This is known as the effectual call or irresistible grace. This is the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God by which he divinely summons those whom he's appointed for salvation and draws them to himself, overcoming their resistance, overcoming their rebellion, and drawing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he's referring to here in verse 6, among whom you also are the called. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 Verse 14, it was for this that he called you through our gospel. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness. Friend, you need to understand that if you're here today and you believe in Jesus Christ and you have received the gospel, it's only because of sovereign grace. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I need to be saved. Um, I've seen enough evidence And um, I've been persuaded that I should believe in Christ. Maybe that's how it happened from your perspective. But that's not the full picture. The full picture is behind the scenes. God in his grace and his mercy has been working sovereignly to draw you to himself, to open your blind eyes, to remove the stoppers in your ears, to help you see the glory of God in the face of Christ so that you can receive the gospel. Want an illustration of it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light, of the, glory, or the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul draws an analogy between creation and regeneration. In the same way, God spoke in the first few days of a creation and said, let there be light, and there was light. He has also spoken to the hearts of those whom he has appointed before the foundation of the world and said, let there be salvation. He opens their blind eyes. He removes their their blinders so that they can finally see what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so what happens is suddenly your heart is changed. Up to this point, you've been rejecting and resisting and rejecting and resisting, and suddenly the eyes of your heart have been opened. And you suddenly see Christ in all of his majesty and all of his beauty and all of his glory and your rebellion is overcome. Your resistance is overcome. You are irresistibly drawn to Christ through the work of the gospel and the things that once looked stupid and boring and meaningless and irrelevant or weird now look beautiful and precious and desirable and you want to embrace them because of the divine call of God through the gospel in Jesus Christ. There are not many people lining up, banging on the doors of heaven, pleading with God to get in. Everybody is running far, far, far away from God and away from heaven. And God in his divine sovereignty gently turns us around, opens our eyes and says, come to Christ. And through the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the work of regeneration in your heart, through the gospel and the calling of God, your eyes are open, your ears can hear, and you see Christ. And you say, yes. So don't ever say, the gospel is really not that exciting to me. How? How? How can you think about that and study that and realize that and be indifferent and cold 
for the gospel. Friends, you ought to be excited. You ought to be excited because it's the mercy of God and the grace of God that has opened your eyes, called you through divine grace and sovereign calling and effectual call and irresistible grace that's enabled you to see, and that's why the gospel should thrill our hearts. There's one more. Oh, by the way, if you're not sure you're the called, do you want to know how for sure you can know that you're of the called? Believe. Don't, don't try and figure out, you know, am I called? Am I not called? Am I elect? Am I not elect? Am I predestined, not predestined? No, stop that. Come to Christ. And if you come to Christ and you express faith in him, guess what? You're the called. Point number five. It's accompanied with incredible privileges. It was anticipated in the Old Testament, accomplished by Christ, announced for God's glory, applied through sovereign grace. Number five, it's accompanied with incredible privileges. Verse seven, we've got to wrap this. Verse seven, we've got to wrap this up. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul does here is he just piles on a bunch of uh, privileges that you have as a result of being in Christ, and he's reminding the Romans of all these great blessings and privileges that come to you because of the gospel. Look at the first one: you are beloved of God. You're beloved. You're loved by God. The very God that you once rebelled against and hated and ran from has now showed his mercy and his kindness and his love to you. And by the way, I don't think this is talking just about the general love that God has for all people. And God does love all people. He loves the world. He's created all people in his image. But when you read verse 7 and he says, to all the beloved of God in Rome, I don't think he means every person in Rome. Who are those that are beloved of God in Rome? It's the believers. And so we need to say that God's love for the elect is particular. Or let's say it another way. His love for those whom he has called and chosen is greater than his love for all the people of the world. You say, I don't fathom that. Well, really? Um, if I say I love you, I do. But I say if I have my wife, my beloved Julie... I love her a little more. It's not hard to fathom. God has a particular love for the elect. He has loved us specially, and it is that love that has compelled him to issue this divine summons through the call of the gospel in Christ to draw us to himself and open our eyes and enable us to believe the gospel. It's because of his love. It's he who first loved us, not us who first loved him. Because of that, secondly, he calls us saints. Saints, called saints, holy ones, set apart ones. And so when God sees you, Christian, he sees you as holy. That's what the word saints mean, and not in a a way that we may be familiar with it in our society. But the word saints biblically means those who have been called apart, set apart, holy ones. So when he looks upon you, he sees holiness, perfection. You get that? When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to your account. He sees the perfections of Christ that have been granted to you so that when he sees you, he doesn't see your sin and all of your darkness and all of the failures in your life. He sees Christ. Friends, you're holy. You're perfect. Maybe not in practice yet, but you are in position. Lastly, Because of this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You get grace. You get peace, both subjective peace and objective peace that results because of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So you need some reasons to love the gospel again? There it is. Five of them. Five reasons that ought to inform your mind and inflame your heart. And I'm telling you, friends, that treasure, those riches are far greater than any riches you will find in this world. God, help us to love the gospel. Help us, Lord, to love, love the gospel because it is the means by which you have drawn us into a relationship with yourself. You've called us, redeemed us, regenerated us, beloved us, called us saints, showered us with grace, mercy, love, peace. 
oh God, how can we not be so overwhelmed and so filled with gratitude and thanks because of the incredible work of Christ on the cross? Lord, perhaps in this room today, there may be some who are not saved. Some who still just don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. God, would you today call them to get, today overcome their rebellion, today open their blind eyes and enable them to finally bend the knee, to become a slave of Christ and for the first time in their life be free. And so God, we pray for your mercy and we pray for your kindness to draw anyone this morning to yourself. For the rest of us, Lord, let us love the gospel. Let us go through this week rehearsing these truths about why we should be so excited about it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.